Drinking aloe vera daily is a great way to help your digestion and balance your stomach acidity naturally. Yes, you heard that right. You should drink your aloe. Our wonderful partners, Lily of the Desert, have been making the highest quality aloe vera products since 1971. When you drink their aloe daily, you can not only support your gut health, but it is clinically proven to boost your immune system, reduce toxins that prohibit nutrient absorption, increase your daily supplement absorption, and improve antioxidant support. Lily of the Desert's aloe juices and gels are the perfect addition to your favorite smoothie, or you can mix it with another juice. The aloe will help boost the nutrient absorption of those good-for-you ingredients. We love that they grow the aloe themselves organically, and from field to bottle, oversee all processing and manufacturing to help maintain quality and lower cost to you. They offer a full range of products, including USDA organic aloe juices and gels, condition-specific herbal formulas, and of course, aloe topicals for your glowing skin. Check them out at your favorite local health food store or on Amazon, or you can visit lilyofthedesert.com to learn more. Hi, I'm Lisa Davis. So glad you're listening to Health Power. I just read such an amazing book. It is called I Survived Cancer and Here's How I Did It. 35 Cancer Survivors Share Their Journey. I love books like this. I love anthologies. I love to see how other people got through things. And it is by the fantastic Savio P. Clemente. Savio P. Clemente coaches cancer survivors to overcome the confusion and gain the clarity needed to get busy living in mind, body, and spirit. He inspires health and wellness seekers to find meaning in the why and to cultivate resilience in their mindset. Savio is a board-certified wellness coach. Number one best-selling author, syndicated columnist, podcaster, stage three cancer survivor, and founder of the Human Resolve LLC. Savio, welcome to Health Power. Thank you so much, Lisa. I'm so excited to, uh, to talk about uh, a challenging situation like cancer. So thank you so much for inviting me. Yeah, I'm so glad to have you on. You know, Savio, one of the things we're going to do, and I, I asked Savio ahead of time, he asked such great questions in the book, and I thought, has anybody ever asked you, because you're a cancer survivor, these questions? And he said, no. So we're going to do that. And then you're going to be like, okay, I got to get this book, because Savio asks amazing questions. And you made my job easier. <laughs> I always come up with my own it. questions. Um, but before we do that, I want to get back. I want to get into your childhood a little bit. You talked about being a sensitive child, having social anxiety, having a stuttering impediment. Talk to us a little bit about, about, you know, your younger years. Yeah. You know, I would say I was just one of those um, children that um, was very insular, um, very observant, but also just extremely um, sensitive. So I grew up with two older sisters. We're all three years apart um, and I'm Asian Indian. And the area that I lived in was interestingly like 49% black, 49% white, and 2% other. And me and my family were the 2% that were other. Um, so I always felt to some degree like I needed to fit in. I needed to make attempts to fit in, but I knew I was also different. Right. Well, I just pronounced your name Savio. I assumed it was Hispanic, even though I read your book. So I paused. So Savio. Yeah. You know, most people, when they see my name, they're they don't know I'm Indian. Uh, so the area that my parents are from is Goa, India, which was ruled by the Portuguese for about 400 years. And then and then in the late 60s, there was a war. And so India seized control of that region. All right. Now you write about 
as a child, you were always questioning, always questioning. Yeah. You know, I grew up Catholic. I went to Catholic elementary school for eight years. I was an altar boy for about six of those years. Uh, but I always knew for me that I wanted to figure out the deeper meaning of things. Uh, and so I was just always searching, looking um, uh, extremely, I, people would call me a sponge. I would just like soak things in, um, which was good in a way and not so good in other ways. Um, and for me, I just, uh, um, I always felt that there was like a a more um, realized state of being, uh, uh, even though I couldn't contextualize it or understand it, uh, I always knew for me I needed to explore. Uh, and that meant explore vicinities, explore thoughts, explore um, passions, explore um, ideas. Um, those were the things that really got me um, interested in, in, in moving forward. Now, in July 2014, you write, you woke up with your sheets drenched in sweat. A week later, you saw a naturopath. That naturopath urged you to get a sonogram and tell us what, what happened from there. Yeah, so a little, a little background. So I've seen this naturopath for about seven or eight years. I've seen him yearly. Uh, he would get blood work. Basically, what they do is they analyze the blood. He's just very gifted in that sense. He would tell me what vitamins he needs to take, what meats, proteins. Just very good at that. But he's like, something's wrong. I can pinpoint like four or five things it could be. You really need to go uh, to the realm of mainstream medicine and figure out what this is. Um I went to the sonogram office. They wouldn't let me leave for like an hour and a half. I'm like, what's going on? Finally, they said to me, someone needs to pick you up. I'm like, what are you talking about? I'm an adult. I have my car in the parking lot. Like, sir, you really need to go see a doctor. We recommend you seeing one at the hospital. So we go to the hospital. Um, within about an hour and a half, I'm admitted to the fifth floor. I had no time to even think about it. And then I was told about maybe 12 or 13 hours later that I had non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, stage three. They had to put a nephrostomy too because my stomach at that point was being was so distended that they had to um, uh, um, they had to get rid of the six or seven liters of fluid in my abdomen. So I was hospitalized for one week, bedridden, and then I was in the hospital for another week uh, in order to just recover. And also three days before I left, I was urged by the medical director to get my first round of chemo. Oh my gosh! Now, did you? I did. You know, I thought a little, you know, deep and hard. So be, before cancer and before all this, um, I was very open to medical science. I'm not, not that I wasn't, but I just was someone who never took aspirins. I, I only saw the doctor if I needed to. Um, I kind of was a baby biohacker in a way. That was when biohacking was at least taking some form and shape. Um, not too many people knew too much about it, but I had an idea. And uh, hence, I would see a naturopath. I would do, you know, I would, you know, work out saunas and all these different things. Um, and I talked to a really good friend and she's very holistic, organic, you know, organic minded. And she's like, you sure you want to put those poisons in your body? Um, chemo ravages everything, the good and the bad. You know, I sat with myself, Lisa, and of course, I had no other thing but to sit with myself. I'm, I'm bedridden. And, you know, I don't know if you ever watched the movie. Um, I tell the story often because it was really um, prominent in my decision making. Um, Little Buddha with Keanu Reeves. It was no, back in the, in the late 90s. So he basically played Siddhartha, which is the young Buddha. And so he gave up his worldly possessions, family, everything. He wanted to see what life was really like. So as he was meditating with the other ascetics, um, he literally had no food. He was like living on one grain per day or, or, of rice. And he heard while he was meditating in a boat, two individuals. And one of them says, if you hold the string too loose, it won't play. And if you hold it too tight, it will snap. The road is the middle way. You must find the middle way. And that's when he woke and realized he went too far. He went way too far. And that's what I realized. I said, okay, 
I'm going to do the chemo because the medical director actually said to me, verb, you know, verbatim using an expletive, I don't care what the F you do, but you are really sick. You're stage three. And if you don't get on chemo, I don't know what to tell you. I don't know what's going to happen to you. And so I decided to do that. But I was also empowered to know that once I get out of the hospital, I have I have full body autonomy and I wanted to do integrated modalities. So I searched high and low for those integrated modalities. See, I think that's great. I mean, I have this thing of like, oh, I, I'm never getting chemo if this happens to me. But it's so easy to say that until you're in this situation. Yeah. You know, and especially seeing my mom, she went through 20, how many chemos did she have? I think she had like 27 chemos. She had six abdominal surgeries. She did integrative. She did holistic. She did Western and she still died. So I'm like, I'm not doing any of that. No, I shouldn't say that. That's horrible. But you know what I mean? It, it kind of puts this negative mindset of like yeah. she suffered and suffered and suffered and then that's it. But yeah. not everybody survives, you know? It's, it's interesting you mentioned it because I remember very clearly seeing some of those, I can't name the cancer center, but it was a cancer center that was very integrative minded. I remember saying to myself before cancer, if I ever have cancer, not that I want it, I would do something like that. And lo and behold, I had to make a pivotal decision in the moment. Because sometimes when people are told they have cancer, they have a few days to think about it, a few weeks to think about it. They can go to this doctor and doctor. I was admitted to the hospital, bedridden. I had a nephrostomy tube attached to me. I couldn't move for a week. Uh, I, my decision-making was, I mean, as much as I got stellar care. I really did. I counted like 13 or 16 doctors uh, in a row in those two weeks. Um, I will say I didn't really have that much of a choice, so to speak. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, you're here. So <laughs> you, you did the right thing. You know, I love in the book too, you talk about physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual. And I love in, I love in all these. In physical, you write, live fully the human experience, resource the right energy, and check in with the three brains. If you could check, uh, check on this, if you can touch on these, that would be great. Yeah. So, so basically the three brains are, um, so I'm a, a board certified wellness coach. My uh, niche is coaching cancer survivors. It's really what gives me the greatest uh, power and the greatest joy. And it also allows me to fully embody my experience. Uh, and I promise myself, if I hit the five-year remission mark, it's never guaranteed cancer won't, won't won't reoccur. It could, it could possibly, but if I hit that, that I would do something with it. So it's basically mind body integration and it's the head, heart and gut. And most people obviously live in the head. I did for many, many, many years still do, but um, there's also, so this aspect of living in the heart and the gut and the gut is the seat of courage. And honestly, if I look back in 2014, what was happening in my life, there was a lot of turmoil happening because I was in a business relationship with three other individuals and I didn't have the courage, Lisa. I didn't have the courage to tell them how I felt. I didn't have the courage to, uh, to extricate myself. I didn't have the courage. And I'm not saying that was the main cause of cancer, but it definitely was a part of it. Uh, and so in my work, I do embodiment work. I use the body as a resource, not just talk therapy, but actual body. Is the body telling you something? Is the body saying something to you? Are there, are there visuals? Is there something holding you? Are there any hindrances? And so that's what I mean, my, uh, you know, mind-body connection. Live fully the human experience. You know, it's kind of funny. I had a hard time living the human experience for a really long time. I was like quasi-woo-woo, spiritual, you know, like emotional guy. And living in the body, cancer taught me this vulnerability of actually accepting that your body's sick and you need to do something with it. Oh, yeah. Let's talk about mental. You write, make to do, will do. You got to explain that. And then create a gratitude journal, which is, is a wonderful thing. What does make to do, will do? Yeah, I another uh, post-it guy. <laughs> I was a post-it guy. <laughs> I'll do that. I'll do that. I'll do that. And sometimes you have to change the narrative or change the way you talk to yourself. 
and say, no, not I will to, I, I will to do it. I will do it. I actually will do it. And if that means truncating the list instead of seven things, it's two things, you will do those things. So it's really just making it more actionable and making it more important, a priority in your life. Yes, absolutely. All right. And then emotional, you have emotions as a divining road. Yeah. So uh, um, uh, divining rod. You know, I take so many notes and when I do interviews and sometimes I'm typing really fast or there's autocorrect, but I, I was like divining road, Ooh, a divine road. <laughs> it could be a road too, actually. Uh, yeah. For me, it was the rod. It was the visual of like, you know, Moses, the 10 commandments, whatever your belief system is. And, and, you know, his rod was, you know, his way through the maze. Uh, and so emotions for me, instead of uh, people burying things down, emotions, live in the body. Trauma lives in the body. And so the emotions bubble up. And so use that as a, as a way forward, use that as a way as your quote unquote yellow brick road, right? Figure out how is that going to get you from point A to point B or point A to point C. Yes. And then spiritual detach from your triggers and seek the truth in everything. Yeah. So that's a hard one. We're living in a world where truth has been obfuscated and it has been changed and it has been manipulated. Uh, whatever your political um, reference point is, I don't really care. Um, and so what I mean by that is, you know, speaking for someone who's a cancer survivor, who's been through cancer, coaches, cancer survivors, I know that these challenges and these things that happen, happen not for a reason, perhaps it could be, but also happens so that it needs, we, we need to figure out ways to overcome. We need to figure out ways to polish the facets of your character, ways to, you know, people call it karma, whatever, whatever the phraseology is. And so it's a, it's a controversial word, um, but it is something that I urge people to do, including myself, looking for the truth and looking for greater truth beyond, because there's the small team truth and the big team truth. Oh, awesome. All right. Now, I want one more thing, and then we're jumping into these kick-ass questions of yours. Tell us about the trans-theoretical model. Yeah, so that was uh, something in coaching. So I'm board certified. I'm also ICF certified. means nothing to the layman, but in the coaching world, they're considered two main um, big avenues of, of, of accreditation. Uh, and the trans-theoretical model of change, which is called the stages of change, posits that people are not resistant to change. They just don't know how to change. They don't have the tools. So in other words, are they contemplating it? Are they pre-contemplating it? Are they moving towards action? Are they moving? And so when I, it was like a big light bulb. I'm like, oh my God, that makes sense because people often assume they don't want to do it. No, they don't know how to, they don't know. They, they need assistance. That's where coaching really helps and also therapy to, you know, to a large degree. Um, and that really sort of allows people to, to navigate and to figure out how am I going to live in this particular stage of change? And do I need to move forward? Do I need to move backward? Because sometimes you do regress, but the key is to keep moving forward. And so that uh, is something that I found really profound. I want to include it in my book because people often say when you like, I know a friend whose father doesn't think about his cancer that he had 15 years ago. Um, and then I know people, they live with it daily. They support the cause, you know, they do all that. And so I think, um, anything happens to you in general, maybe you shouldn't live in that emotion, but you should not forget because you don't want to repeat things. So that's what I mean by change. You, you yourself need to change on many levels. Yeah, I totally agree. Now, some of the questions that you asked, we might've already covered, but this is what we're going to do. So you went through 35 people and asked them these great questions. We did, you did 
get to know us better. Tell us a bit about your childhood backstory. Can you please give us your favorite life lesson quote? Can you share how that was relevant to you in your life? So just a little uh, background. So the 35 interviews I include in my book really started off initially with, uh, so I have an interview series with Authority Magazine. I'm a syndicated columnist. And so I interviewed 200 cancer survivors. And I, I, out of those 200, I chose 35 and told my own story. Uh, So that's how it started. So in terms of the life lesson quote, um, I would probably say um, uh, 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 to know thyself is to heal thyself. Um, I think you really know what you're made of when you are in front of a crisis and because the crisis allows you to make a decision. Uh, It's a tipping point and you have to decide whether or not you want to move forward, stay, or you want to, you know, regress. And so for me to know thyself, to heal thyself is to really unravel some of those hidden feelings, fears, emotions, and also triggers. What was the scariest part of that event? What did you think was the worst thing that could happen to you? And this relates to the question about the story surrounding how you found out what you shared. Yeah. So after uh, I was, uh, after I saw the doctor at the hospital and I was admitted to the fifth floor, I heard whispers that I would be transferred to the seventh floor. They called it the cancer floor. So I had an idea that night that I probably had cancer, although it wasn't definitive. And I just remember, so I'm an emotional kid, but I'm also someone who doesn't like, uh, as a good friend once said, for others to see your pants down. I'm just not someone who cries in front of people. It's just not something I, I have an issue with that. I'm, I'm working on it. This idea of like not having others pity me, which was cancer really, um, oh, yeah. you know, allowed me to confront that actually. Um, and I just remember crying to the nurse and you know, what's really interesting in looking back and I'm glad you asked me this question. I wasn't crying because uh, I didn't, I, I was fearing death. I, I kind of was the child who never really, fear death. I, I kind of have an idea of where I'm going. I don't know exactly what it is. No one really knows, but I have a greater sense of, of connectedness with the universe. Um, I actually just didn't want to disappoint people. I had um, responsibilities. I had financial obligations and that was going through my mind. And I was crying to the nurse and I remember she said, it'll, it'll, it'll be okay. You'll be all right. And I, yeah, that was, that was probably one of the first times I ever did it to a complete stranger. I I didn't, I only knew her for like an hour or two when that happened. So I think that's really important, right? Like for your growth and. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, most people would be like, oh my God, I'm going to die. And I now for me, it it was, I didn't want to leave a legacy that I disappointed people. Um, Yeah. That was mine. Wow. How did you react in the short term? And it, it sounds like you didn't have a lot of time to even process what was going on. I I didn't. Um, so uh, I mentioned I about 13 to 16 doctors and they had to do a bone marrow aspiration. I remember oh um, them saying to me, except by profusely sweating, said people were kicking and screaming, would yell at them. It's like, you handled it really well. It's like, we've told so many people they have cancer and you just handle it. I said, what am I supposed to do? Like break down? It's not my nature. It's not my personality to do that. Now I have this, it's defined, it's a challenge. I need to figure out what I need to do next. Like I can't, I can't um, be, be stuck in this moment of anguish. I have to be empowered enough to know what I need to do. And so I was researching, thankfully, Wi-Fi was really big in the hospital. I was researching <laughs> constantly um, from many sources. I even created a Google alert to alert me as to what my cancer was about. I wanted to know its strengths. I wanted to know its weaknesses. 
Now, you touched on this a little bit uh, when we talked about the physical, mental, emotionally, spiritually. After the dust settled, what coping mechanisms did you use? What did you do to cope physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually? But tell us if there's something that we missed when we were talking about those four categories earlier. I think the only thing, obviously, spiritually, um, emotionally, those were like a lot of work, like journaling and just, you know, figuring out. I'm still working out. I had my hair all gone. My eyebrows were gone. No one actually tells you also that when you have chemo and your hair goes, hair goes every, like hair leaves your body completely. So right. you know what I mean? I, I got I look it. at myself in a, <laughs> as a, pu- a prepubescent boy. I'm like, this is just not good. Um, <laughs> Where's my hair um, down there? Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, in any event, I think the only thing I would sort of add, and uh, you know, I have to be very careful because I'm a board director at one ago, so I'm not advocating anyone to do this, but I did a whole bunch of integrative modalities uh, and I researched um, them as well. So I did complementary medicine. Uh, and I think that's the only thing I didn't mention in the book, um, but that's the thing that I did. So I did everything from ozone therapy, which was, you know, which is really big in Germany, um, to, uh, um, you know, you know, red light therapy, um, you know, black seed oil, um, um, energy medicine, acupuncture, chiropractic, like I just, I did it all just to uh, allow myself um, to feel whole because I didn't, I didn't want that choice to be taken away from me as well. Yeah, I think that's really great. I mean, if you have the means and you can do all those things, that's I'm go for it. Yeah. Is there a particular person you are grateful towards who helped you learn to cope and heal? Can you share a story about that? Uh, I would probably say it was probably uh, uh, I'm no longer friends with her. Uh, that was that business relationship that didn't end oh, so well. Sorry. But I've known her for about 20 years and she really allowed me to come into my own and to be empowered with decision making to really grow. 20 years is a long time. Um, I was in my early 20s when that happened. Um, And so I would say she really taught me this idea of polishing the facets of your character, that we're not just here to work. And I, I know everyone talks about this, but we're also here to be better humans. And that means we need to confront the dark areas of ourselves, people call it the shadow, whatever the issues is, and really consistently and constantly be okay with doing those things or being in action of those things. Because, uh, you know, to a large degree, we only have this particular life in this moment in time and space. uh, And so we need to make the most of it. So very true. You write, in my own cancer struggle, I sometimes use the idea of embodiment to help me cope. Let's take a minute to look at cancer from an embodiment perspective. If your cancer had a message for you, what do you think it would want to say? So what was the message for you? I think the message for me, um, so I'm a big Erica Badu fan. And so there's a song in it where she talks about baggage, carrying the bags. And, you know, and I think cancer would say to me, it was a hard lesson for you to swallow, but you were carrying too many bags. You, you needed to let go of those bags and you didn't have the courage to. So, so cancer came in and helped you care, um, helped you take away some of those bags. Um, it sounds so simple, but it's very, very hard, especially when you're seeped into what you believe, uh, you know, that particular business endeavor was a, um, I felt mission driven. It was something that I loved to do, um, but it also was killing me. Yeah, that's big. Uh, What did you learn about? Well, you mentioned this. What did you learn about yourself in this very difficult experience? How has cancer shaped your worldview? What has it taught you? 
uh, that you might never have considered before. Can you please explain with a story or example? And you talked about the courage and changing things, but is there anything else that, that happened with this? Yeah. So Lisa, before cancer, I was in IT doing websites and mobile apps. And I promised myself that if I hit five years, I would do something with it. Um, this is uh, um, a little bit before COVID happened. I knew I needed to shift and do something. I, I didn't know what that was. And things just sort of worked out. And so now, now I'm a coach. I'm a syndicate columnist. I'm a podcaster. This is the work that I've chosen to do. And this is, this is really uh, my core mission. So. And you just answered the next question. How have you used your experience to bring goodness to the world? And you are doing just that. Yeah. You know, I'm really big on telling stories. So initially when I pitched the idea of doing cancer survivors, my editor was like, that's interesting. It got 200 responses. Then I did another follow-up, five things you need to know from a cancer doctor perspective. Um, that got like 150 responses. And then I just followed it with resilient stories, 300 responses. So I really try to put out good stories into the world. And I just came back from Boston. I cover wellness events throughout the country. Oh. Um, so yeah, I, I covered South by Southwest. I just covered um, Biohacking Congress. Uh, I did the Global Wellness Summit as well. And so I, my job is to figure out what is the intersection between medicine and what people consider health and wellness, right? Because I'm living proof that I did both. And so for me, I'm making it a point to challenge both sides of the spectrum. What are a few of the biggest misconceptions and myths out there about fighting cancer that you would like to dispel? I would probably say the number one is that, um, uh, and I'm going to get a little flack for this, but uh, your doctor is not um, the Wizard of Oz. Uh, I like that. He, he does, he's not the only one with the answer. Uh, he probably is qualified to answer, but you have to advocate for yourself. You have to have the power and you have to, even if you don't understand what you're researching online, which you have to be care careful, it is a slippery slope. Um, you have to um, work in tandem with that doctor or doctors or, or your healthcare team. And I think that's number one. Uh, number two, <laughs> healing doesn't always take place in the clinic. It doesn't always take place in the medical uh, doc. It doesn't take place always in the chemo bay. It takes place at home. It takes place where you're sleeping. It takes place. So you need to create a, 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 a ritual. You need to create an environment where you feel whole and complete. And if things aren't working, you need to extricate yourself from those and say, listen, I need space. You need to give me time to heal. I can't deal with this right now. So you need to empower yourself to say that. Uh, and I would say probably the third thing I would like to really dispel is the fact that, you know, when it comes to um, health and wellness, and, you know, I've had the fortune, good fortune to talk to many lauded, uh, you know, individuals in their field of health, wellness, energy, medicine, you know, you name it. And one of the things I think people often forget is no one has the complete answer. There's no such thing as the truth. It is steps and, and, um, and uh, you know, doorways to the truth. So you need to consistently and constantly figure out ways where you go inward and then outward. It's like an ebb and flow of figuring out what's motivating you, what's driving you, what's the impulse, what's the compulsion, what will allow you to feel, what is that vision? What is it that you want to do and be and say and do outside of cancer? Who do you want to be? Yeah, these are great questions for everybody. Here is the main question of our interview. Based on your experiences and knowledge, what advice would you give to others who have recently been diagnosed with cancer? What are your five things you need to beat cancer? Please share a story or example for each. 
So I would say a lot of it echoes what I just sort of stated. Um, but I would say to a large degree, um, and speaking for cancer survivors and cancer individuals right now who are going through the struggle, um, you need to figure out for yourself not why cancer came into your life, because that's something that might not ever be un uncovered. But you need to figure out for yourself, how is it that you're going to get back? How, you, how is it going to get back to who you were, who you are, or how you want your life to be? And that requires you to figure out things that um, are difficult to say, are difficult to experience, and are also difficult um, to confront. Um, so I think that's that's number one. Uh, I think the second thing is um, what really helped me is getting to the grassroots of my spirituality. And I don't mean a religion and I don't even mean, you know, things of a woo-woo nature. Just in terms of what is it, what is your presence in the real material world in conjunction with how the world is forming and shaping in and around you? What's happening to you? What's What are you thinking about on a daily basis? What are you obsessing about? What's your stress levels? You know, what... What are the things that are keeping you uh, encumbered? What are the things that are keeping you, you uh, to a large degree, um, um, closed off to things, to new experiences, to people, to events, to, and, you know, these are things that people don't often talk about because most people want to just be reactionary when you find out you have cancer. I want to heal the tumor. I want to kill the tumor, you know, and I respect it well, but when people say F cancer and all that, Cancer came into your life for a reason. Like, even if you don't understand it, you out of many got it. So you need to figure out how can you um, come to terms with that in a way that allows you to to take the, not the lesson, because that's like a tricky, a tricky word uh, when it comes to cancer, but how can you take that experience and make it something that will shape your life in a better and more positive way? Time for me to talk about the wonderful sponsor this month, Athletic Greens. I started taking AG1 because I don't like taking pills and vitamins. I wanted a supplement that tastes great, a light, tropical, mild flavor. I start my day with AG1. With one delicious scoop of AG1, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole foods, source, superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens. This helps with your nervous system, your gut health, your immune system. I notice I have more energy. I have more focus. What I love about it, too, is that it's lifestyle-friendly. So whether you eat keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, gluten-free, it costs less than $3 a day. You're investing in your health, and it's cheaper than your cold brew habit. And speaking of habits, AG1 is a small micro-habit with big benefits. It's one thing you can do every single day to take great care of yourself. On here on Health Power, that's what I want you to do. I want to give you the tools to help you take care of yourself, and that's why I'm so excited about AG1. Now, to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash power. Again, that is athleticgreens.com slash power to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. You are a person of great influence. If you could inspire a movement that would bring the most amount of good to the greatest amount of people, what would that be? I think the movement of bartering. 
um, mm-hmm. this idea. Uh, yeah, because, you know, so I'm a big Blue Zones uh, guy and, you know, they've done, you know, research different parts of the world where people just have longer longevity levels and they sort of tracked it. And one of them is this idea of giving and receiving energy for energy and this idea of bartering. Like, why does it always have to equate to something of a monetary nature? Yeah, why I can agree. I just give of my influence, of my expertise, of my knowledge? And of my time, even if you don't know, because I think the connection piece is what allows individuals to feel uh, like they're being heard, seen, and know. And for me, travel allowed me at a young age to explore that. I, I've been, I, I, you know, I've been fortunate enough to travel to six continents. I've seen the world, and once you see how other people are living and doing and breathing and 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 being and their beingness, you come to realize that we're all in this together. So there is no separation. Uh, and so I would say bartering really allows individuals to feel like you're on their team. We are very blessed that some very prominent names in business, VC funding, sports entertainment read this column. Is there a person in the world or in the U.S. with whom you would love to have a private breakfast or lunch and why? So there's a few, but I would say uh, the classic one would probably be Oprah. But I would probably say above <laughs> that at the moment would probably be Brene Brown. Ooh, um, yeah. I just love her work and her um her, you know, discussions and her, you know, her, her work around vulnerability, shame. Um, I think shame is what kept me uh, hidden for a long time. Uh, shame is what sort of um, allowed me to feel less than, and shame is what uh, disconnected me to something of a greater purpose. Um, and I would love to not only pick her brain, but also uh, have a conversation how that shame uh, can be more of a language that can be taught or discussed at a younger age. Because I, um, you know, I grew up with Asian Indian parents and I was the only boy and I was a sensitive child uh, um, and I'm also gay. Uh, and so, um, uh, you know, shame was something that I needed to, to, to hide from that, that they would come and get me. Um, so it was taught very early on, not so much, not so many words, but just in action that I needed to keep hidden. So I think oh, sorry. I would love to have that conversation. How are your parents now? And well, how were your parents when you came out? You know, it's a lot. I've taken them on a large ride. And how old were you too? Just to give us some context. Sure. I was in college. I was in my sophomore year. So I think I was 19 or 18 when I came out. Uh, and, um, I don't think it's, um, I think they are open and accepting of me as a person. I don't think it becomes real because I'm not in any committed relationship. Not, I'm not married. So for them, me being gay is just, um, okay, he doesn't want to get married, like, you know, to a woman. Like, you know, I don't think it's, uh, it, uh, it will become anything big unless I do choose to be partnered in on some level. Um, but beyond that, like there's not been any negativity associated with me. Like no one's telling me to, you know, I, I have not been part of the Catholic religion for many, you know, for a long time. So it's, there's none of that um, um, issue, but I've also taken them on many, you know, I've, I've tread, I've um, gone through many um, uh, hurdles with them in terms of um, independence and making choices and work and, and, you know, always pushing, you know, pushing boundaries. Then I had cancer. That was another thing that, you know, that uh, I pushed them towards. So I would say I probably came into into their (laughs) life to cause them to grow. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Growth is so important. Yes. And I think I'm glad that they didn't 
you know, kick you out or no. not. I that's kill. I just will never understand that. My daughter's bisexual. She has a non-binary partner. I'm all for it. It's great. They're on their way over. I I, I just they're who they are and it's beautiful. And I that's, just that's it. I just think I just think people get too caught up in the uh, in the identity rather than the, the the human expression. There's an identity and there's a human expression. Human expression is we all want to take care of ourselves. We want we all don't want to you know like we all want to be loved. Um, and so that's what you need to focus on is the expression of the human, not the identity, so to speak, because you could be born in a different country. Like I say this, I told my parents a long time ago, I'm like, we could, like, I could have been born in, uh, you know, in like in, in uh, China and been a Buddhist. Like, it doesn't really matter. It matters what kind of person I am. Who am I expressing on a day-to-day basis? What am I doing? Am I giving and receiving? Am, am I contributing to society? You know, what am I? What are my day-to-day, uh, how am I using my energy? Savio, those are the questions you ask, uh, how can our readers follow, uh, further follow your work online? But we're not done yet. I did want to mention some of the people that you interviewed. I really love what Alan uh, Chinowski said, appreciate your caregivers and show them that they matter too. I have a friend who took care of his parents for over 10 years. Wow. And then when he went back into the workforce, they're like, well, you don't have, you haven't worked in 10 years. And it's like, are you flipping kidding me we have got to change that i mean he was managing nurses coming and going and social workers and take i mean and then just running the house and doing everything like that's not work it's 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 a travesty because it is he was doing what he um knew was the expression right the expression of his parents right love and so it is a shame that that happened to him wow So I'm really glad that Alan uh, emphasized that. I also love what Amanda Rice said, and and you kind of allude, we didn't allude to this. You said sort of the same thing. As brilliant as doctors are, nobody knows your body like you do. Yep. 100%. Absolutely. I love this as well. Uh, Eve McDavid said when you asked her favorite life lesson quote, real change, enduring change happens one step at a time, just as Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I love that. Yep. And uh, there was another person, uh, Jacqueline H. Jones, a death from a cancer diagnosis never settles. That's the truth. But my, my resolve was to win. Yeah, 100%. Uh, these stories of individuals of triumph, and I, I was very intentional. Uh, I wanted to um, make sure that um, genders were represented. I wanted to make sure that eth- ethnic cultures were represented. Um, and so, and I wanted to make sure cancer uh, diversity was represented as oh, well. Yeah. But all these individuals, like I said, I had 200 interview, uh, you know, for this particular interview series, 300, 200 people responded um, and also told their stories. And it was hard choosing the 35, but I wanted to make sure that people understood that it's not a death sentence. It doesn't have to be. You can survive it. We are examples of that survivorship. So, you know, yeah, all is yeah. not lost. Yeah, so true. When people reach out to you for, for coaching, like let's say I give you a call and I'm like, I just got like, diagnosed and I don't know what to do. Could you just tell us a little bit about your method, what you do, how you do it? Don't give it all away, cause, <laughs> but just give us a little taste. Sure, sure. So just to be clear, um, and people ask me all the time, they're like, it says here that you coach cancer survivors. Do I have to just be a survivor? Oh, cancer survivors. I apologize. No, okay. no, 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 no. But I mean, I, I have to be clear. Of course, I'm never going to turn away someone who's like, I just got diagnosed. Of course, I'm not going to do it. But I know where my genius lies. My genius lies is, is actually um, not being 
held down by this idea of whether you, you are a survivor or not. Of course, nothing is guaranteed. So once they're a survivor, and like I said, I'm open to them being patients, um, I really go deep. It's called the Accelerated Path. It's a three-month program. Um, we meet once a week. Um, and I use uh, every um, coaching skill there is. But not only that, but I listen to the actual individual. Because coaching is not about... Um, figuring out the answers because I will never be an expert on you. You will always be an expert on yourself. But I have coaching uh, tactics and you know techniques where I use the seven energy centers. Right, we go directly into it. I had hard. I ask hard hitting questions. There's you know reflection. Uh, you know we go into resilience strategies. You know uh, we go into mindset. Um, there's sort of this this idea of creating that vision for yourself. How is that going to sort of work and be? Uh, how can you activate that? How can you find the resources you need? How can you be accountable for yourself as well? And those, that's some hard work because this isn't an accelerated type of focused. But I do that on purpose because I think when you make things a priority for individuals, when you give them tasks, they have they feel like they have to rise to the occasion. And when it comes to cancer, action always trumps non-action. You always have to be in action of something with cancer because it just does what it does. And so for me, um, it's definitely challenging, um, <laughs> but it's something that I do with love and a light hand as well. Well, you have such a wonderful energy and spirit about you, Savio. What are the seven energy centers? Yeah, uh, 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 those are the ones you know that we alluded to. So it's the mental, it's the emotional, it's the spiritual, it's the soul, uh, it's the vibrational, it's the astral, um, and and those, and obviously the physical. And those people call chakras and whatnot. I just want to make it really simple for people, seven energy energy centers. And then with that is the three bodies, which is the head, heart, and gut, um, you know, the three brains. So now do you have a group too? Can people work in a group with you or is it all individual? I don't work in a group because people are at different levels sure. of, of, of comfortability. Um, and when you get into the aspect of cancer survivorship, the world is your oyster because you're thinking, I want to like someone coined the phrase, they want to be Rob 2.0. And I'm like, okay, Rob 2.0. But then there's someone who's like, no, I'm still stuck on the reoccurrence aspect. And there's someone who's like, I'm going through side effects. How can I get rid of this? And so uh, I would be open to it in the future. But at the moment, it's just one-on-ones. And I find that the privacy aspect really helps individuals because it, it is it is a very um, trying thing to say that you're a survivor. For me, I felt a lot of shame around it. I felt a lot of pity. And you know what's interesting, Lisa? And this is crazy. So uh, my best-selling book launched in February. Of course, you know, people know. But to this day, my extended family still doesn't know I had cancer in 2014. I, yeah, I know. My mom, my dad, my sisters know. Their partners know. Their kids know. But I, my, one of my sisters in California was like, let's tell everyone. But I didn't want to be seen as a zoo animal. I knew I was in the hospital bedridden. I didn't, I didn't, I felt a lot of shame. I did. And that sounds really weird, but I did. Um, and, uh, you know, when the book came out, of course, they'll probably find out, <laughs> <laughs> but um, I, I didn't. And so, um, so with that, I'm very careful that when I have these uh, coaching conversations with clients, that it is done in a, in, in the utmost, you know, the container is done in the utmost respect possible. You touched on the shame a little bit earlier, but I'm just, I want to dig in a little bit more. I know you talked about you don't like people having pity. I'm, I would love for you to expand on that because I'm a little confused because like to me, it, it feels like if somebody has cancer or any other illness, like 
why do you feel shame? And not in a judgy way. Like, I really want to understand you way. Yeah. So, I, and and I, I know where you're going with this because intellectual wise, I'm like, this makes no sense. Absolutely. But feelings and emotions are two different things. Sure. And also the process, you know, processing that is a different thing. I think for me, it's the labels. Like I knew I was different. So that's a label. I had a stuttering impediment. That's a label. Um, I, um, you know, had social anxiety. I wasn't officially diagnosed, but I knew I had social anxiety. That was a label. I was a short kid, Asian Indian. That's a label. I, you know, uh, a kid I remember in high school used to be like, "Did your mom wear a Donna?" And I'm like, "I'm like, no, my mom is the Portuguese." And you know, I would have to like go out of my way to explain. Um, gay. That's a label. And then cancer. That's a label. And so for me, the shame was, "What am I not like?" I, I'm not worthy of being whole and complete because I have all these all these labels. I have all these detractors for me. And that's where the shame is. Um, of course, I've un unraveled it. I attended men's groups. I've done my own work. I tell people all the time as a coach, people think you, got, like, you have all the answers. It doesn't work like that. You're just a couple of steps maybe ahead of other people. Uh, and so for me, um, I, I also practice what I preach. I do stuff on my own. Like I have a newsletter every week. I talk about the three brains and I talk about how I'm feeling and what's going on in my life so that others can glean that information and maybe do something with it with themselves. Well, you know, I'm so glad that I asked because, you know, my daughter is neurodiverse and has several labels. So, yeah, I'm so I'm really glad you shared that, Savio. Yeah, it's also sort of this idea of feeling um, like less than. Yes, like yes. Not yes. feeling, not feeling like other people, feeling ostracized. Uh, and that's where the shame comes in. Yeah. Well, I think you're incredible. Is there anyone, anyone, anything that you wanted to leave us with, Savio? I mean, I'm just so taken with you. I'm like oh, wishing you, you could come over and hang out. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate it. You know, I just, uh, I just want people to really ask the tough questions of themselves. I know that's easy said than done, but it's really in those tough questions. You might, you might not get an answer. The, the, the point is not to get an answer. The point is to ask the question because the point is you want to keep growing. Um, so I would say that's number one. And then, of course, they can always follow me on on the different avenues, that, you know, online. I can tell you that now. I can tell you that later. Yeah, no, no. Tell us now. Yeah. So my main website is thehumanresolve.com. Um, my book website is called isurvivecancer.co. Um, and there, the book trailer, you can have the link to Amazon. Uh, you can also see some of the press write-ups that I've been fortunate enough to get and look at some of the bios in there. Um, as well. And on social media, um, on uh, Instagram and on Twitter, I'm at at the human resolve. And on LinkedIn, I'm at Savio P. Clementi. Wonderful. And the book is awesome. I mean, I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed reading everybody's stories and getting to, to ask you the questions that you asked. And it's funny because I don't write questions down. I mean, I take tons and tons of notes, but I don't have specific questions. So it felt funny. It's like I'm reading, like if somebody <laughs> comes halfway in the interview, they'd be like, who replaced Lisa? Why is she reading questions? Uh -huh. So I'm reading questions because these are Savio's questions that he asked his his uh, the people that he interviewed for the book. And I think they were fantastic. And you just, you're an inspiration, Savio. I really appreciate you coming on Health Power. Oh, thank you so much, Lisa. Yeah. And, and you know, one of the things I'm also a podcaster as, as well. And for season two and season three, I basically show people how I coach. So it's 30 minutes of me coaching someone and oh, then 15 really? minutes. Yeah. And the 15 minutes of them talking about themselves and what they want to promote. And I did that consciously and purposely because I know um, some of my clients, which I get, you know, through word of mouth and referrals, um, listen to it. And they're like, oh, that's interesting because that's what I struggle with. So I coined them specifically like the one about this or the one about that, because I want people to be focused on 
what is their problem that they want solved for themselves. Oh, wow. Now, is that for just cancer survivors that you interview or everybody? Yeah. So season two was all cancer survivors. So every week, I um, uh, my podcast launches every Monday. Um, it's called The Human Resolve as well. So you can find me on all the um, podcast platforms. Season three, I'm actually stacking. So one week it is with cancer survivors. And the second week, uh, so I have a uh, third uh, interview series with Authority Magazine, Thrive Global, and uh, BuzzFeed. Uh, and it's called Rising to Resilient, How to Be Resilient During Turbulent Times. And so I actually do a deep dive with the article about that particular individual who actually contributed to that article. So oh, cool. every other week, it's a cancer survivor. And then every other week, is is it's talking about resilience as well. So excited to listen. Savio, this is so great. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Please follow me on social media, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, at Lisa Davis MPH. And be sure to keep coming back to Health Power. Well, that's it for our show today. Thank you so much for listening. We appreciate you. And we would appreciate it if you could please rate and review and leave a comment because the more you engage with our podcast, the more you will find it and help other people find it wherever they listen to their podcast. So be sure to follow us. I'm at Andrea Donsky and at Naturally Savvy and Lisa at Lisa Davis MPH. Thank you so much. And please share this episode because the more you share shows you care. We'll see you next time.